Well, today we are actually starting a new message series called Safe Haven. I've been looking forward to this series ever since I came across a book by an author named Dr. Joshua Straub. Uh, the name of the book is called um, Safe House. And the subtitle of this book is How Emotional Safety is the Key to Raising Kids Who Live, Love, and Lead Well. And the more I've heard uh, Dr. Straub speak and write, I, I was very intrigued that he was onto something that's so needed within our families today. In fact, I started looking into the possibility of bringing him to our church to speak sometime, and when I looked at his speaking schedule online, I noticed that in a week from when I looked at that online, he was going to already be in Colorado Springs. He was going to be at Focus in the Family for a radio interview. The following day, he was doing a workshop at a um, Fort Carson um, Special Forces um, symposium they were having down at the Antlers Doubletree downtown. So I got a hold of him to ask if I could meet with him just to get to know him and, and see what he's like. And so I actually went down and got to meet with him and his wife just to prove I did. There they are with, uh, with me right there. And we got to talk about the book and this whole subject. And, and I was very impressed with um, what he's been discovering in research and his knowledge of the Bible and how they actually weave together. Because his belief is that our homes need to be safe havens. What is a safe haven? A safe haven is a place where people want to gather, where family loves to be together. Uh, oftentimes there's meeting places, a kitchen table, a living room, where people just love to gather and there's lots of laughter, there's encouraging words, there's prayer for one another. Uh, and there, there's just a sweet spirit in that place. And unfortunately, homes like that are very rare. Honestly, homes like that are, are much more rare than we think. I didn't grow up in a home like that. We didn't have a gathering place in my home. We heard laughter. Oftentimes the laughter was at the expense of another family member through sarcastic jabs. And there was a lot of yelling, and there was some cursing, and there were tears. And I've tried to, to, to learn how to do this thing called bring, making your house a, a safe haven. But honestly, there are times where I've been intimidating and I've created fear within my own household. And I'm so glad that God gives us a chance to redeem that time. And especially for us who are grandparents. It was about two years ago that my son started dating a young single mom. She had a little, little boy. Born, he was born in some traumatic circumstances, but a very frightened little guy. And didn't like to, to be around other people. Cried all the time when they were at our house. And, and I wondered if this boy would grow up being um, emotionally, relationally delayed. He just didn't seem to adjust well to other people. But if you met that little boy today, now that he's three years old, he's a very outgoing little boy. Um, he just got reviewed at his school. And they said he's one of the brightest kids in the school. He's just got a sweet personality. And you know, I think the change started when they actually left an environment that was very toxic. And they were looking for a place to go, and we said, you know what, why don't you come live with us? And so we cleared out our basement, and they took over our basement for a couple months. And every day, I got to see Corinne and Aiden. And as we spent time together, we started to notice they were blossoming. And this little boy, like a flower in, in, in healthy soil, began to flourish. We watched that happen with Corinne, too. She's, she's gotten invited in three weeks to go to um, San Diego to speak at a domestic violence retreat with other women to share her own story and how God has brought her through it. Now, she could have done that two years ago, but it's just beautiful. And I attribute all of that to the fact that we have provided a safe haven for her and her son. We're going to look at a story today, a story that, that, that is all about a, a safe haven and how that safe haven is possible because the, the greatest contributor to, the, to making your home a safe haven, fortunately, is in this room today. It's you. 
So I want to pray that, that you and I would have ears to hear what the, the Holy Spirit would want us to hear today so that, so that we could bring it home and honestly, for some of us, find our family tree, our, our, our family environment change for generations to come because of what we hear today and in the coming weeks and how we apply it to our lives. So, Father, we commit this time to you right now in Jesus' name. Would you speak to us through your word with power, with truth? Give us humility to listen to your voice, Father, and the courage to do the things you ask us to do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read a story to you, a story you're probably somewhat familiar with. It's called The Parable of the Prodigal Son or the Lost Son found in Luke chapter 15. Now, Jesus told this story to communicate to religious leaders who didn't like sinners that God has a different attitude toward them. So Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast to celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, in the, in the Jewish culture, for a, a boy to demand an inheritance from his father was, was basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because that's when he would get the inheritance. He didn't want to wait until that day. He wanted it up front. And his father graciously gave it to him. The son went off and he blew it. We learn later from the older brother that he had actually spent money on prostitutes. So he was doing this wild excursion and ended up on a pig farm, which for a Jewish person, again, was pretty humiliating because pigs were, were unclean to them. So then he decides he's going to go back home. Now, I don't know why the boy left, but I, I suspect it's very similar to why many of us left our homes at a young age. Um, our parents will try to raise us in a way that, that teaches us the lessons they've learned, but for most of us, we have to learn our, on our own. We have to learn the hard way. And sometimes as parents, it's hard to watch our kids go out and make mistakes when we know where it's leading. But sometimes they will not learn until they make the mistake themselves. And mistakes are redeemable. Most of them are redeemable. And so uh, the bigger question is, why did the boy return? Because I would, I would guess there are a lot of reasons why he wouldn't want to return. For one, it's, it, I'm having too much fun. I'm having too much fun out here. But that really wasn't the reason why. He, he could have said, I, I feel so ashamed of how things turned out. I have a lot of regrets for my choices. I feel unworthy to even step foot back in my father's household. Maybe there was pride uh, saying, you know, I, I need to defend my decision and prove that I was right. A lot of the reasons why he could have stayed away. But there was one main reason why he went home. You know what that is? It was safe to. I can go home because it's safe. 
And as he went home, and guess what? His, his dad came running down the street, wrapped his arms around him, called for the servants to bring clothes to put on him to show them he's not a servant, he's a son. They actually had a big feast to celebrate that event. That is a safe home. We need homes like that, safe havens. And here's why. Because our homes are exposed to great danger. I think more danger than ever before. When I was a child, growing up in a little town in in Wisconsin, we could go outside and play with our neighbors until the dark of night. We would go over to friends' houses blocks away, and my mom and dad had no clue where we were. They, they just felt safe. They felt like all the neighbors were good people who we were safe over there. They didn't worry. They didn't panic. There, there weren't things on the news about kids being kidnapped, and so it was all good. In fact, when it, when it got time to dinner, my mom would, would do this thing where she would put her hands like this. I can't even do it. All my whole life, I've never been able to do this. But she would go like this, and she could, like, kind of like a whistle, kind of like a whistle and a horn. And, and then she'd go like this with her hand, and it would go like, woo. And we would come running from blocks away like, that's mom. Because no one else did that in the whole neighborhood, just our mom. So, so we would, all of us kids would come running from homes. We'd hear it inside the houses. And we would come running because mom called us. We wouldn't do that today. See, we live in an extremely dangerous world today. We're very protective of our kids. See, our families are threatened by all these forces outside. They're bad people out there. They're, they're, they're bad kids out there. So we're very selective, for many of us, of what school our kids go to. Oh, I don't want them going to that school. That's not a good school. I want them going to that school. It's a better school. Or that's too dangerous over there. They need to go to that one. And we're worried about our kids being bullied in school or being taught bad things in that environment. We are particular about the friends they interact with, the friends that you allow them to bring into the house. You're very guarded about where they get to go. You want to know all the time where they are. You want to know whose house they are in. You want to know everything about that family before they go in that house. You're very protective. I mean, this is a different world than when I was a kid. Like I said, we didn't have stories in the news all the time about kids being abducted, um, teachers sexually molesting kids, uh, um, kids being murdered, school shootings. The stuff that we see all around us today has become normal. That was not normal. You, you could not find a school with a metal detector when I grew up. And that's just standard today. Police officers roaming hallways. It's, it's a different world. It's dangerous. Not only is it dangerous out there, it's creeping into our homes through the internet and through the media and through our cell phones. And so we're very protective of what our kids are getting exposed to on their phones and on their tablets, on their computers. Because all the stuff is creeping in and even the TV and the music and we're very guarded because we know that may not damage them physically, but affects them emotionally and mentally. But I want to tell you, as dangerous as the world is out there, there's a greater danger inside. In fact, I believe the greatest danger to your family lies within your very home. That danger is you. The most dangerous thing in the home and the most powerful thing in the home are the parents. Parents have incredible influence over kids. Parents have have incredible power for good or evil in the lives of their kids. We as parents have the incredible position to influence our kids more than the schools, more than the coaches, more than the friends, more than the media, if we choose. Unfortunately, many of us have abdicated that role and we've stepped back and we've allowed others to step in and influence them. We are called as the primary influencers of the values we pass on to our kids. And I want to say a word to you grandparents. I'm one of them too. 
It falls on our shoulders too. The Bible says to teach the next generation and the one to follow, which means your kids and your grandkids. We don't hold our hands up and say, I'm done with that. I raised my kids. No, you haven't. You've got to continue to pass on to the next generation. You need to come along beside your kids, help raise the grandkids, share the lessons that you've learned. The problem is, though we may acknowledge the fact that we have great influence over our kids, our actions don't back what we say we believe. What I mean by that is most of us in this room would say, I acknowledge the fact that my child's relationship with God is paramount. It's the most important thing in their life. However, when push comes to shove, I will sacrifice the things that would encourage their spiritual development so they can be a success in some other area of life. Now, here's one of the areas that I see this quite often is in sports. Kids get involved in club sports or uh, uh, team sports, and they'll schedule games on the weekends. And so people will say, like, you know, we can't make it to church this weekend because we've got a game, we've got to travel to Denver, we've got a road trip, uh, our kid has baseball, soccer, volleyball, whatever it is. And I understand we want our kids to, to pursue their dreams, but, but there's a subtle thing happening that we have to realize. When we say it's okay to miss worship, it's okay not to honor God in the first part of your week, because right now this is most important. God understands the church people, they understand. Isn't it ironic that we don't say, the team will understand if I make church a priority. The coach will understand if I need to be in church. You might remember the story of Eric Liddell in the Olympics many, many years ago. And, and his, his race was scheduled on a, on a Saturday, which was the Sabbath. And he says, I can't run on that day. And he backed out of the race. He ran a different race. And God blessed him and he won that. But he says, I, I, cannot, I cannot dishonor my God. I have a commitment to honor him on the Sabbath. You see, many of us find that foreign in our culture because, you know, we've got to stand up to the other parents. And we feel a little squeamish like saying, well, I think church is really important for my kid. <laughs> Your kid's not going to start shortstop then. He's not at the game. Bob Russell, who was one of the leading pastors in our nation for many years, came out of Bible college, took over a church that ran about 150. By the time he retired a little over a decade ago, the church was running 20,000 people. And Bob Russell is a huge sports fan. He says when he was in Little League, the team learned that they were invited to participate in a weekend tournament. He came home all excited. He said, Mom and Dad, we get to play in this big tournament, and the whole team's excited, and we're planning to go. And they said, well, when is it? And he gave the date and says, well, that's, that's a Sunday. He goes, yeah, that's no, that's a Sunday. That's church day. He goes, but dad, I can miss church. He goes, no, we've made a commitment and church will come first. And so <laughs> it was really funny. Bob, he just wrote this recently in his blog. He said, on that, day, on that very Sunday, he loaded his family in the car, drove by the school where the team was loading on the bus, honked his horn and waved on his way to church. And Bob sat in the back. And he says, I just slunk down in the seat so my friends wouldn't see me. But he says, what I, he, says that he was mad at his dad. But he says, in hindsight, he says, I learned to appreciate my dad for the stance he took. Because he, he was really saying, as for me and my house, this comes first. This comes first. We won't sacrifice worship for this. But I just wonder, how, when push comes to shove... And you start putting, you know, we, we, we don't go to church because we're on vacation. We don't go to church because we've got sports. We don't, we don't do this because of this. When you sacrifice the things that benefit you spiritually, what you're telling your family is God is supplemental to your life. He's not fundamental to it. And there's a difference. 
When you start saying, I like God as long as he fits into everything else, that's supplemental. When you say everything else fits around my walk with God, then it's fundamental. It's foundational. And there's a value. Grandparents. We say we're committed to our kids. We want them to walk with the Lord. But then we step back and say, but my job is to spoil the grandkids. We've got kids that say, you know, grandma spoils me. Do you know what it means when something spoils? They're rotten. It's rotten. It destroys the value of that thing. Why in the world would we want to do that to our grandkids? Don't spoil them. Love them, but don't spoil them. Don't set them back on their spiritual growth. We live in a very difficult world, and our homes need to be a haven. And every home reflects a story. Every home reflects a story. Sometimes a good story, sometimes a bad story. You can go through a a downtrodden neighborhood. You can go through a very well-to-do new development. And behind every door, there is a different story. Sometimes that story in the new development is a story of dysfunction and brokenness and anger, tension. You go, to the, you go to the house that looks very run down, you find out the story behind that door is one of laughter and acceptance and love. The physical building tells you very little about the story behind the house. And the problem is many of us have stories that are secret stories, stories we don't talk about, stories that if people knew what really went on inside that house, we would be embarrassed. I look back at my childhood. Um, I grew up in two homes, spent um, my first nine years at one house, and then, and then the next nine years in a second house. And you know, when I go by, my mom still lives in the second house, but the very first house we lived in for the first nine years, when, when I go back to Milton, Wisconsin, and drive by that house, there's, there's a weird feeling in my heart. I, I, can, I can say I don't jump for joy at that house. There's actually something that makes me feel like there's some bad things associated with that house that I don't want to remember. And I don't remember much about that house. I honestly can only remember 10 or 15 things of even nine years in that house. I think I've blocked out a lot of it because it wasn't a safe haven. It was a home filled with a lot of tension, a lot of yelling, a, a lot of hurt. And truth be told about your house and your story, what would the kids say? I sometimes think about my own kids. When they drive by the houses where they grew up, what will they tell their kids? What will they tell my grandkids about that house? Because I've been largely responsible for the climate of that house. See, your story and my story affects people around us more than we know. It really does. We drag pieces of our story forward into our lives. And as Dr. Straub says in his book, your past is not your past if it's affecting your present. It's hard to totally break from your past. It's amazing that when we go back to visit my family in Wisconsin... Inevitably, after a few days there and, and hearing some of the squabbling going on and some of the sarcasm, Julie goes, okay, I see where you get it from. I go and see her family in Indiana. I look at some of their characteristics and how they interact. And I go, okay, that's what I'm working against. The family stuff leaks into the present. We bring it. If you grew up, grew up in a family that was, that, that was very hostile and violent, it's hard not to bring some of that into your your um, present life. If you grew up in a family that was very performance-oriented, you, you had to get good grades, do your chores, earn love from your parents, you can't help but bring some of that into your present family relationship. We each, because of our past, bring a climate into that environment. When you walk into the room, 
there's, there's sort of a cloud that comes with you. It could be a, a bright, airy cloud. It could be a dark, stormy cloud. But you bring, you bring weather with you. When you walk in the room, people are, go like, hey, it's awesome. Or, uh-oh, dad's home. Uh-oh, look out. Well, that person is in the room. We better shift how we behave. And there's a question I learned from another pastor that I think is an amazing question to evaluate the climate you bring into a room, into your home, into your job, and it's this. Ask the people around you, what is it like to be on the other side of me? What's it like to be on the other side of me? Now, if you're unwilling to ask that question, you're not a safe person. Because we should care about how we're coming across. It's called self-awareness. There was a gentleman I worked with in the past, and several of us came to him and said, hey, you're coming across in a very abrasive way. People are intimidated and afraid to be in your presence. And you really ought to adjust what you bring into that environment. And you know what his response was? They need to toughen up. They need to mature. They need to grow up. This is what life is like. And I thought, how sad. How sad. Instead of saying, is that really how I come across? That's not how I want to come across. I ought to change. No, no. I don't have a problem. They have a problem. And when you're always pushing blame on other people, when the problem is always them and not you, then you're the problem. Uh, There's another guy. He's a pastor of my old church. And he brought a consulting firm in to evaluate the staff health. Because a lot of churches were doing that. He says, I want to find out how healthy our church staff is. And so they're going to fill out these questionnaires. But before they did, he went around just kind of quietly in the crowd and said, hey, you love working here, don't you? This is a great place. Who would want to work anywhere else than this church? And while he wanted an honest assessment from people of the culture of the staff, inwardly he says, but I want them to say it's really good. I don't want the truth. I want what I want to hear. And if you're going to ask this question, you need to really stop and listen to the answers you'll get. Ask your, ask your spouse. Ask your kids. But I just challenge you, sometime this week, in a very serious moment, say, you know what, I'm gonna, I want to ask the question the pastor told me to ask you. What's it like to be on the other side of me? And you know what? For some of you, there might be a little fear, like, I don't know if you want to hear the truth. And you need to make sure that they know it's okay, it's safe to tell me the truth. I want to know. And what you're going to hear is probably three things. Some things that will encourage you, that you actually bless them more than you realize. You're also going to be surprised. Some things they say that you didn't know about yourself. You're going to go, oh my goodness, I didn't know I came across that way. And third, you're probably going to feel hurt. Hurt. It's going to sting a little bit. Part of the sting is going to come because you didn't realize how much you hurt the people around you. But it makes it possible then to address the issues within your life because your story from your past is affecting you more than you realize. And you can't erase that story. You can't go back and erase it. You can't rewrite it. It's, it's gone. It's, it's there. It's, it's written in stone. But here's what can happen. God can redeem and rewrite the story. That's what's so amazing about the Bible. All these stories of people who live painful lives and, and finding God able to redeem and rewrite their story. You don't find perfect parents in the Bible. You don't find perfect people except for Jesus. There was a man named Joseph in the Old Testament. He was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. He was uh, lied about in Egypt. He was thrown into prison where he was forgotten and ignored. A lot of reasons he could have been bitter. 
Yet God brought him up to the place of being a governor over the land of Egypt during a time of famine. And during that period, his brothers and his father came, and, and Joseph actually revealed himself to them, and their relationship was restored. There were tears and hugging. And, and the Bible says that what, what was intended for evil, God intended for good. God rewrote the end of that story. But what was most important for Joseph wasn't that he was a success in Egypt. What really brought Joseph peace in his heart was he had healthy, restored relationships with his family. I can't think of anything greater in our lives to be a success in than in the relationships. And safe homes require a high commitment to healthy relationships. That's good for us as parents to know. We can put an emphasis on a lot of things, on academic achievement, on music and sports excellence, on obedience, doing their chores and all those sorts of things. But I want to encourage you, place the highest value on your relationship with your children, a heart-to-heart connection. How are we doing? Not, not just on are you doing the things I've asked you to do, but how are we doing? How, how are you and I doing? What's it like to be on the other side of me? Life is all about relationships. The greatest successes in your life will not be plaques on walls or dollars in your bank account. It will be your marriage. It will be your relationship with your kids, the longevity of your relationship with your friends. It will be based on EQ, not IQ. Everyone knows what IQ is, your, your intellectual um, quotient. But EQ is your emotional quotient, your emotional intelligence, your ability to relate well to other people. Um, we've got to learn to do that better. And what better place to learn to do that than in the home? In the home. Our homes need to be havens of love. It's a place where love is practiced. Now, how do you do that when you yourself have been broken? How do you create a home that's a haven when you didn't grow up in one? How, how could I do it when I didn't experience it as a kid? How do I learn to do it? I, I don't know how. I don't have it within me. That's okay. Someone's willing to come along beside you. In fact, the very one who designed the family wants to work in your house, household. See, in Psalm 127.1, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. He's not talking about brick and mortar, nails and wood. He's talking about your family. Unless the Lord builds it, you're going to work in vain. There's two things God promises that he can build and build well. The church, Jesus says, I will build the church. And God says right here, I will build the house. And so we want God to come in and do what we can't do ourselves. He knows how families should function. He designed them. And he can bless them. And so one of the things we know from God is that the highest value, the the greatest virtue you can contribute to your kids is that of loving well, raising them up to love well. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus described the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He says the second commandment is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. All boils down to two things. Love God, love others. You want to be a success at life? Do well with those two things. Of all the things God is looking from us, it's that. It's not Bible knowledge. It's not ministry achievement. It's not length of prayer time. It's that we have grown in these two things, loving God and loving others. But I don't know if that's what the kids are hearing in our homes. A few years ago, Harvard did a study and found that 80% of the kids... Um, said that the primary message they receive from their parents 
is this, that personal achievement and happiness is more important than relational health. The fact that they do well and that they're happy is more important that they have, than they have good relationships. Nearly the same percent, 75%, said my parents are happier if I get good grades than if I'm a caring person. Really? Is that what we think? It's more important that my kids do well in the class than if they become a caring person. And what we're communicating is success matters more than character. And yet, what's going to set them up for the greatest success in life? Their grade scores, their ability to relate well to other people. See, if, that, if that's our, our greatest value we're trying to convey in our families, I need to raise up my children to love well. Here's the problem. I don't even know how to do it. How can I teach my kids to do it when I don't need that? Again, God comes in to help. Loving well begins with knowing you are loved much. Loving others flows out of you experiencing God's love first. Love is not natural. Selfishness is natural. Love takes the supernatural work of God in our hearts. And there's a whole chapter written about this kind of love in 1 John chapter 4. And I'm going to read just a couple verses from here. I'll read verse 7. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from where? From God. Love comes from God. He's the source of love. He's the fountainhead of love. If you want to know what true love is, you look to God. You want to tap into the source of true love, have a relationship with God. And how do we know that God loves us? Verse 10. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We didn't make the movement toward God and say, God, I love you. And God says, okay, because you love me, I'll send Jesus. He says, no, when you didn't love me, I sent my son to die for you so that you would have the freedom to come back to me and know that your sins are forgiven. And then we jump down to verse, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fear in our homes is what is crushing the ability to, to fill our homes with love. And that fear can come from another number of angles, Um, fear of failing, fear of not doing a good job as a parent, fear of disappointing the people around us, fear of not measuring up to the neighbors, fear of losing something that we have. You know, just just fear all around us. Uh, Those fears just permeate our lives. And I've I've got to teach my kids to obey because I'm afraid they're they're just going to turn out rebellious. I'm afraid of when they go off to college, they're not going to do the right thing, so I've got to really drill things into them right here. You know, we're, we're just afraid. We're just tormented by fear. First-time parents, golly, they're just so afraid. I'm afraid, you know, of, of, of sudden death syndrome, and, and I'm afraid of not disciplining the right way, and I'm afraid that I'm not feeding them at the right time. And, and what about spanking or not spanking? I don't know all that stuff. I'm afraid that I won't discipline my kids the right way. And so we're just, we're just consumed by fear. But, but here's how we get rid of fear. Perfect love drives out fear. So here's a formula you need to remember, and we'll we'll repeat this throughout this series. Love minus fear equals safe relationship. Love minus fear equals safe relationships. The more love, the less fear. The more love you receive from God, the more love you give, the less fear. The less your kids will be afraid of you. You know, I, I... one of the worst times of my life was, was one time when I just lifted my hand to scratch my head and my son jumped back. And I thought, why would he do that? 
because I had used this to spank him at a time. And this became more of a weapon. God wants to drive out fear with love. Now, being loving is not the same as being perfect. You need to know that. Being loving doesn't mean you're perfect. In fact, I would say it's the opposite. Being being loving admits you're not perfect. If you can't admit you're not perfect, then you're phony. You're unsafe. The safest people are the most honest people. And, And it's much better for us to come to terms and say, you know what, Daddy blew it. Honey, I spoke to you in a rude way. Acknowledge the faults. See, more important than doing the right thing is being the loving person. And when you're just trying to be the loving person, you have room to correct. You have room to apologize. You have room to bring grace in. And your family forgives you. Your family works with you. We need to ask ourselves this. Am I being the type of person that I want others to be? Am I the type of person I want my kids and my grandkids to be? Am I the kind of person that's allowing the people around me not to recoil and wither, but to flourish, to discover who God made them to be? Are you a safe person? Maybe some of you aren't, and that's okay. There are many times I'm not a safe person, but you know what? I have a heavenly Father that says, come on home. My arms are open to you. He loves us so much. And so I'm not here to heap guilt on you or shame on you. What I'm here to do is try to get you as close to the Father who is the source of love.